You're listening to Life and Leadership, A Conscious Journey, the podcast that shares wisdom and strength. Join your host, Dr. Michelle St. Jane's weekly conversation on how to have a positive impact for people, planet, and the wider world. If you want to live a life of intention, be proactive with your time, and bring your vision for the future to life one today at a time, you are in the right place at the right time. Let's get started. Our world is full of experts across different disciplines. The opportunity arises within interdisciplinary and intergenerational collaborations to understand each other. The field of polymath, that being one whose genius spans multiple fields, means we can bring together the understandings of multiple spheres like economics, music, psychology, physics, politics, and let's gain a higher vision. So by bringing all these multi-talents and multi-expertises together, we can collaborate and design a world based on finding the fulcrum point between the sacred money market, people, and planet. Joining this conversation is Storm Cunningham, the Executive Director of Reconomics Institute, and he's also the editor of Revitalization. This is a journal for urban, rural, and environmental resilience. They're focused on regenerate economies, heritage, farms, and nature. Storm Cunningham, former beret, special forces diver, socio-environmental in my words, is focused on water, housing, job growth, transportation, just to name a few, natural resources, downtowns, brownfields, heritage and climate, social justice, education. Have I said enough? Well, I've got more. Not only that, he is a speaker and an author of The Restoration Economy, Rewealth and Reconomics. In his current role, Storm is the Executive Director of the Reconomics Institute. This is the Society of Revitalization and Resilience Professionals in Washington, D.C. So let's get to speaking with Storm. As a child, what did you want to be when you grew up, Storm? Well, hi, Michelle. Thanks for having me on your show. Well, whatever it was I wanted to be, I can't declare success or failure since I'm still waiting to grow up. But I have to guess that since my primary uh, passion when I was a kid, which has stuck with me to this day, is for reptiles and amphibians. I've been an amateur herpetologist all my life. So I would guess that if you had asked me at the age of five or six, I would have said I wanted to be a professional herpetologist. How brilliant. How brilliant. And New Zealand is home of the Tuatara, a yep. wonderful, beautiful ancient being that still exists on the fringes of society and is probably a lot more balanced than most of us, then I join you in wondering what I want to be when I grow up. (laughs) I'm on the fourth chapter of trying something different. So Storm, what are your top core values? I guess leaving places better than I found them. It's, It's the essence of everything I do professionally and what I try to do privately is uh, it's why virtually everything I do starts with RE. It's all about redeveloping, revitalizing, regenerating, you know, restoring, repurposing, renewing, reconnecting. Yes, that's definitely a theme for sure. So I'm kind of laying the field here. So do you have a favorite hero and or heroine? Oh, I guess a bit unrelated to my field, but uh, I would guess my primary hero would be Gandhi just because... He was probably the most courageous person who ever lived, and he achieved a global-level change 
with no resources. Absolutely amazing. Absolutely amazing. I have to confess, he's one of my heroes. I stumbled across him when I went to law school and thought, wow, you know, here is a legend to lean into, like amazing. His story is so amazing. And his ability to make change, as you said, with so few resources, yet inspire so many across major diverse divides. <laughs> yep. So if you were to become the CEO of planet Earth, what would you address first? Well, I would actually, if you'd asked me that a few years ago, I wouldn't have had a ready answer, at least not a concise one. But as a result of the research I put into my most recent book, Reconomics, just came out last year, I actually have a concise answer there because I've spent the last 20 years in my, my whole professional focus has been on revitalizing communities, restoring natural resources, creating resilience. And I've mostly been doing that as a speaker and workshop leader. So I've been shown up in literally hundreds of events all over the planet, and all of them focused on some aspect of re. And for every talk I gave, I usually heard at least a dozen because I'd stay around for the whole conference. And so I probably heard more stories of success and failure in terms of improving places than anybody else on the planet. And I spent that time looking for commonalities, looking for universal truths. You know, what, what was always present in the successes? What was always missing in the failures? What was universally applicable, no matter what kind of political or economic system you might have? And I distilled that into what I call the Reconomics process. It's a minimum viable process that brings places back to life. So if I were president or CEO of the planet, I would apply that Reconomics process to the planet. Oh, I love that. Thank you. And I really celebrate the fact that you've been in enough places and spaces and heard enough and clearly had your eye on the dashboard of all the evidence to now bring all that amazing life, wealth and knowledge to the fore and saying, hmm, been there, got sweatshirt, seen this before, done that before, who's doing what? That's invaluable for sure. So you're the executive director of Reconomics Institute. Can you define Reconomics for the audience, please? It's basically the study of how an economy uh, grows when it's based on restoring natural resources, on revitalizing communities, on building resilience. In other words, it's a re, just what it sounds like. It's a refocused economy, which means it focuses on the end of life cycle. All the other economic stuff tends to focus on either the first part of the life cycle, which is all the sprawl and the extraction of virgin resources, all the non-sustainable, non-renewable stuff, or it focuses on the middle of the life cycle, which is the maintenance of the built environment and conservation of what's left of the natural environment. But most people, most certainly most governments, tend to ignore to a large degree, even though there's over $2 trillion worth of this activity going on, but they don't really report on all of the end of life cycle stuff, all the stuff that is based on you know, revitalizing the places we've already developed and on repairing the damage we've already done to our natural resources. Yes, and our beautiful blue planet is a harbor of finite resources for sure. I was quite taken with your stand on historic preservation. Why is this important? It's often the key to downtown revitalization, which is one of the more common challenges communities have all across the planet as a result of all of the sprawl and fragmentation that's happened in our communities over the past 
half a century at least, most of it due to bad urban planning, poor architecture, you know, poor layouts of all kinds and single-use zoning and all kinds of things that fragment societies, fragment the natural environment, separate the built environment. We need to be repurposing this infrastructure and our buildings. We need to be renewing them. We need to be reconnecting neighborhoods, reconnecting ecosystems. And the uh, downtowns have often suffered in that whole process with sprawl taking place on the outskirts. So, you know, many, most communities are really focused on downtown revitalization, as we call it in in the States, or high street regeneration, as they'd call it in the UK. Everybody's got a different, uh, or city center regeneration, as they'd call it in Australia and maybe New Zealand. So what you find in city centers, to a large degree, is uh, historic buildings. So repurposing, renewing, and reconnecting those buildings is often the key to downtown revitalization because they expand the capacity of the downtown. At the same time, they make the downtown more appealing visually. And it's also something that's got fairly universal appeal. It doesn't really separate the conservatives from the progressives, the greens from the browns or anything. Everybody loves their heritage and wants to see it come back to life. Oh, absolutely. Bermuda is 500 years old, and I was born and raised in New Zealand, which is a very new country, and living in Bermuda, which is a very old country. It's amazing to see the depth of history here and buildings, and yeah, it's just amazing. And I'm actually quite passionate about history and focused in my master's on doing 200 years of research on secret societies and voluntary associations because there was plenty of things to learn and as it does in many places, has this hub. So I heard you've been here. Was a case study involved in one of your books? Yeah. As a matter of fact, while we're talking about historic stuff, before I get into the focus of the case study, I really enjoyed the time I spent in, uh, was it called St. George's, the UNESCO site? Yeah, we, my wife and I uh, stayed at, I think it was called Aunt Nia's Inn. Is that still in business? Oh, one of my favorite places, yeah. just a beautiful piece of Bermuda hospitality. And yeah, and it's a very old building. I think it's well over 200 yeah. years old. Yeah, yeah. so I, I absolutely love that. And then on the other end of the island, you've got the whole Naval Yard area where I met with, boy, if I'd known this subject was going to come up, I would have refreshed my memory. Possibly but... Dr. Ed Harris. Ed Harris, there we go. Yeah, yep. I was a trustee for over 10 years with their, with the museum. Yeah, great guy. We spent uh, quite a bit of time together talking about not just the historic restoration work that he's been doing there, but also how he tries to integrate the restoration of the heritage with the restoration of the natural environment, revitalization of the local economy. He was one of the the more enlightened uh, historic preservation people I've ever met. Absolutely. And, and Bermuda has a light. We're surrounded by reefs. So there's also amazing wrecks going back for centuries as well. So you can, and you can dive on them because they're of, yep. often in less than 30 feet of water. And in fact, if you're not a diver, you can snorkel on top and see everything. Yeah, I, I tried, so, tried some of that diving, but I guess I was there in the wrong season because the water was surprisingly cold. <laughs> well, we're well over 80 degrees now. I had my swim this morning, but Yes. And the museum, of course, that was also, Bermuda was intrinsic, particularly in the um, American Revolution. 
in terms of sending the 100 barrels of gunpowder from St. George's, thanks to the group of Freemasons and Ireland leaders. And of course, the naval dockyard, I recall that Hitler had announced that they had sunk HMS Malabar, not realizing it was the naval dockyard. And of course, there are other things that people don't know about Bermuda, like we had captured one of Hitler's encryption machines, what was called the cipher. Enigma. Enigma, that's it. And also a submarine as well. And all the flights that were heading from Europe to the States would actually fly into Bermuda and to refuel, supposedly. And they'd go through looking for the microdots and all that kind of thing on Darrell's Island, which was the airport at the time. Yeah. And 007, the chap that that's based on, his, I believe his widow's still here. Stevenson, I think his name yeah, was. Yeah, one thing, and one um, thing most Americans don't realize is that all those ports that are all over Bermuda were primarily built to protect Bermuda from invasion by the United States. Well, actually, first it was the Spanish. <laughs> <laughs> yep, the first forts, I think, went up in the late uh, 16-something, before 1700 anyway. And of course, in the Cold War, they also had the underground sort of sounding systems here. And of course, NASA what was here and is back here. So Bermuda has played an intrinsic part, but often just below the surface, people below the parapet, people don't always know. So tell us about your 2008 book and how Bermuda linked in with the case study. Yeah, well, the case study was on Nonsuch Island, which was one of the more, there are thousands of ecological restoration and species and reintroduction stories taking place all over the planet. I was especially interested in the Nonsuch Island story. Well, partly because it was getting headlines at the time I was researching and writing my book, but also for the fact that it started off being just a an attempt to revive the Bermuda petrel, which everybody had thought had been extinct for decades. And then all of a sudden they found a small breeding colony on Nonsuch Island and decided to revive an entire species based on that. And then that became this ongoing very comprehensive ecological restoration of Nunsuch, which became a great case study because they were always, as is always the case when you're doing ecological restoration, you're discovering all your areas of ignorance, you know, because a lot of people complain about ecological restoration as a discipline because they're saying it's hubris, you know, we're, we're playing God. Uh, of course, those same people don't complain when we destroy the planet and say we're playing God then, <laughs> but somehow when we restore it, it's, it's hubris. So, uh, Dr. Uh, Harris. Harris. Uh, no, no, not, not Ed Harris, the guy who did the nonsuch. Uh, like I said, if I'd known this was going to come up, I would have reread my case study. Uh, I can't believe I can't remember his name. We spent a lot of time together. I'll, I'll add his name to the transcript, yeah, so okay. it'll be there. So anyway, a wonderful fellow. And uh, so he was discovering all of these unusual, unexpected relationships, you know, how we getting rid of an invasive crab would help restore the grasses, which help restore the birds, you know, and all these chains and cascades of relationships here. One of the stories he was telling me was how the uh, turtles had stopped nesting on Nunsuch Island because of all the invasive predators. And when they got rid of the goats and the rats and all of that, the turtles started coming back. And he was saying that his daughter, when she was very young, saw the first turtles nesting again. And every year she went back out to see the turtles return. That was what they were looking for was to actually see that the process had restarted because what he did is he brought in some eggs from another island, planted them there. And when the babies hatched, they'd get imprinted on Nunsuch. 
And so their goal every year, he and his daughter would stand on the cliff there waiting to see the first turtle return and actually nest on none such. Yes, that would be Dr. David Wingate. And, there we go. David Wingate. Thank you. And Jeremy Medeiros. Yeah, yep, they do yep. an amazing job down there. And, is, um, is Jeremy still uh, running the place? He is. And the Kahau or the Bermuda Petrel, they've had yeah. a very successful breeding session in season. And I believe because it's the end of June, they've all left. So for the audience's purpose, the Kahau is the national bird of Bermuda or a Bermuda petrel. The island is the only place in the world that it nests and it nests into the sort of volcanic rock. And they only have one chick. And I think they were down to like about 12 pairs, like it was a very low number of a population. And the Kahau spends the rest of its life at sea. So when the first settlers came in 1609, they literally, that was a major food source because the Kahau had no idea about people and that, you know, they were night birds as well, night nocturnal. Yeah, so between the Kahau, they, it almost went extinct. I think it was rediscovered again in 1959 and I actually wrote a song about it. So, <laughs> And I used that song in a presentation to a UN meeting in 2012 or 13, I think it was. So the Kahau has stood me well in my research as well. Now, the turtles, Bermuda had the first environmental legislation and turtle preservation in 1623. Wow. So, yes, goes way back, goes way back. And now with the island positioning itself as a green country and blue economy, that's one of the things they're very proud of, for sure. So I see that you serve public and private leaders in terms of broadening their understanding, Storm, like around the community regional economic revitalization process and also to strategically position their career or organization within that process. So what surprised you in doing this work? It's more of a shock than a surprise, a hard, horrified to find out, you know, because as you mentioned before, I, I spent some time in the military in an outfit, the Green Berets, that is very heavily focused on strategy and tactics. Uh, you know, the average soldier doesn't have to worry about strategy. That's all taken care of by the generals in some room far away. Green Beret teams have to work in 12-man teams behind enemy lines. So they have to invent their own strategies and tactics on the fly. So we got a lot of training in that. And what I found when I started working with all these public and private leaders is they, they use the word strategy all the time, but 90% of them don't even know what it means. And almost 100% of them don't actually have a strategy. So and they even publish strategic plans that have no strategy. <laughs> it's amazing. You know, and I'll ask a mayor who's just announced that he's launching or he or she is launching a revitalization program. And I'll say, wow, it's great. What's your strategy? And I'll, they'll reach up onto a shelf and pull down a 300-page comprehensive plan and say, here it is. And I'll have to tell them, well, no, that's a plan. What's your strategy? And they'll say, oh, okay, yeah, well, our strategy is to improve our quality of life and attract new investors and residents. And I'll say, no, that's a vision. What's your strategy for achieving that vision? How are you going to overcome the obstacles to achieving that vision? And about that point, they give up in frustration. So that was one shock. The other shock is that virtually everyone on the face of the earth knows that to reliably produce something, you've got to have a process doesn't matter whether you're a farmer or manufacturer or a government worker collecting tax revenues. If you're going to do something, produce something on a regular basis, you've got to have a process. It's the essence of being a manager. 
So, you know, the essence of being a leader is being a strategist. The essence of being a manager is being process focused. And there again, when these communities and regions launch revitalization and resilience initiatives, they have no process for actually producing it. So that's become the whole focus of my training sessions with public leaders is helping them understand strategy and process. Yes, a lost start. Definitely a lost start. I'm interested in moving on to philanthropy now because I see, see that you lean into a legacy where you serve colleges and universities raising public and private dollars. And, you know, I appreciate endowing new chairs, launching new institutes related to community revitalization, climate resilience, and natural resource restoration. What are you most proud of, Storm? Well, it's really, uh, I guess, the raising of expectations that when, you know, I've done talks at, you know, dozens and dozens of universities from Harvard to the University of Guadalajara to universities in China and Poland. And everywhere it's the same is that when the university puts up that poster saying, I'm going to be doing a talk on how to restore the planet for a living, the lecture halls are just packed. Young people love the concept. Most of the younger generations today have grown up in this constant barrage of bad news about what their future is going to be like. And uh, so when someone comes along and says they can actually devote their lives professionally to revitalizing communities, restoring the climate, restoring natural resources, they just go crazy with enthusiasm. So just by knowing that I've, I've raised the expectations and let people know that they can do so much more with their lives, you know, to literally thousands of students, I'm proud of that. It's probably the most satisfying aspect of my work in many ways. Wow. Seeding that leadership journey is a very powerful stand. And I appreciate that you stand in that space and direct your energies that way, Storm. Thank you. I didn't really have a choice. Once I hit on these concepts and discovered these trends, I really didn't have a choice. That's what I had to do. I understand. So what do you wish you knew at the start of this journey? Uh, I wish I'd had a better understanding of how resistant places and people are to change. And the funny thing is that everybody wants what I'm promising, (laughs) you know, that if they do this, this, and this, your place will get revitalized. Everybody wants that. But so many public leaders are just terrified that if they introduce anything new into the system, it'll interrupt or threaten what they're already doing. And they're willing to give up on a grand promise just to avoid any kind of discomfort. And the fact is that you can do all this stuff without disrupting what you're doing right now. But they're so terrified of interrupting a project or some funding source or whatever that they just kind of close their minds to anything new. So much wisdom in those statements. So what do you wish you had done differently, Storm? Oh, I guess I wish I had built a stronger and larger network of friends and colleagues with resources before launching all of this so I didn't have to do it all by myself. Yes, yes. So if you were to give yourself a whisper in your ear at the turn of the century, what do you wish you had known earlier? I guess I basically, it would have been nice just to have started earlier. You know, I'm turning 70 uh, next month. Actually, no, it's this month. (laughs) It just turned. (laughs) And, you know, I plan to do this for at least another 30 years, but I could have made so many more positive changes if I had started 20 years earlier. 
Yes, yes. Well, I have to say, Storm, you're an example of a living legend, a vivid visionary, and a person actively leaning into a living legacy. I certainly appreciate your contributions to this conversation and certainly to the conservation of our precious earth. Would you like to share any last words with my listeners? Well, I guess if you're going to take away anything, remember this. What we restore, restores us. And what we revitalize, revitalizes us. Yes. Dr. Michelle St. Jane is a conscious steward of meaningful leadership in the world and the wider cosmos. Tune in every Thursday for real talk around life, leadership, and your conscious journey. Be ready to create and cultivate your dreams and soul-hearted desires. Your support is valued. Please subscribe. Leave a review and a rating. But more importantly, share with your connections.